0: Hey there, special educator. Before we dive into today's episode, I have something exciting to share with you. If you've ever struggled with writing impact statements for your IEPs, and let's be honest here, what special educator hasn't found themselves at some point staring at a blank box and a blinking cursor wondering what in the world to type. My free guide is just what you need to get those brain juices flowing. Introducing Impact Statement Mastery, your step-by-step guide to writing personalized IEPs. This free guide is designed to help you craft impactful, personalized statements with ease. You'll get expert tips and strategies, easy-to-follow formats, and real-life examples that bring theory to life. It's absolutely free and a must-have for every special education teacher and related service provider. To get your copy, just visit www.spedprepacademy.com slash impactstatements, or check the link in the episode description. Now let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the SPAD Prep Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer, and today we have a special guest with us who is an expert in play-based learning and a devoted advocate for early education. Joining us is Melissa May, a preschool teacher with 17 years of experience in the field. Melissa's passion for play-based learning led her to start her own online business called Pre-K Spot, where she shares child-led play-based strategies to support and inspire fellow early educators. With a diverse background that includes nannying, early intervention work, and classroom teaching, Melissa shares a wealth of experience and knowledge in her practice. In this episode, Melissa will share her insights and strategies for creating inclusive, play based learning experiences in the preschool setting. We'll dive into the benefits of play based learning, how to incorporate student interests and strengths, and practical approaches for building an inclusive classroom environment. So get ready to be inspired as we explore the power of play in early education. Well, hey there, Melissa. Welcome to the SPED Prep Academy podcast. I'm so happy to have you as a guest and to have the listeners learn from you today. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So I reached out to you on social media after I came across your name as a guest speaker at this year's SPED Summit. And I thought your topic sounded so interesting. You were presenting about multisensory experiences and that you were a preschool teacher. And I feel like as an instructional coach and a podcast host, I want to present information on as many topics as I can, but since I don't have experience in the preschool setting, I feel like I fall short in that area sometimes. So I'm excited that you're here to teach us. But before we begin, would you introduce yourself and tell us about your journey in special education? Sure.
1: Um, So as you know, I'm I'm Melissa. I am currently a New York City public school pre-K teacher where I am technically a gen ed teacher teaching under my gen ed license. But I do have some extensive special ed background. It started when I, you know, long story short, I really wanted to teach fourth grade Uh, When I was a kid and when I went to college, I was like, yes, I'm going to be a teacher and realized that upper elementary was not for me. And to get back into teaching, because teaching has always been in my heart, I started working in childcare and totally fell in love with the fives and unders. And there I met several early intervention specialists and realized that this feels good, right? This is where I Mm -hmm. want to be. So I went back to grad school, got my dual master's and a dual certificate and started doing... EI and doing a lot of um, in New York, they have CITS which is basically the same thing as EI uh, for the three to fives after you age out. And so I did ABA. I did early intervention. I did one to one work. I wrote a lot of IEPs. And then, you know, my current situation fell into my lap and decided that that's where I needed to go. So that's how I ended up where I am now. But in New York City, also, there's a lot of special ed programs for pre-K. However, most of the students with IEPs end up in general education classrooms, So we are always working with IEP students. And oftentimes at this age, children aren't getting diagnosed with things, but they're showing the early signs of possibly needing IEPs or having some type of delay later on. And so we are always working with the general population and the SPED population. So that's a little about where I'm at right now.
0: I always find it so funny that most special education teachers never started out to be special education teachers. I know when I started, um, I've always wanted to be a teacher too, but I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. And now I just think that that's so crazy. I could not teach kindergarten for the life I'm so <laughs> I feel like it always kind of falls into our lap. So what led you to focus on creating inclusive play-based learning experiences? So
1: when I went to grad school, everything was play-based. We learned everything through play-based. All of the experiences that I had, especially in the first couple of years or the first year, was all about play. And so this was very new to me. You would hear about play, you hear about different things, but if you don't experience it, it you don't really I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't quite make sense because you're like, oh, the kids are gonna play. All kids play, right? Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a whole other levels of incorporating play into the education classroom. And so this was really the way that I was taught. And all of my experiences with exception of a couple were all in play-based situations, basically from grad school on. And so it just really clicked for me. It just made a lot of sense. I was like, oh, you know, when you're working with the smaller children, and even, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade, um, play just makes a lot of sense. And Mm -hmm. so I just started incorporating it into my one-to-one sessions and it just kind of became a part of my philosophy and now I like try to spread the play based love as much as I possibly can.
0: I feel like the field of education has done a disservice to our littles because they've pushed down that curriculum so far mm-hmm. that you know they're wanting those those little bitties to already be learning their letters and sounds, and it's so frustrating to me. So I really support this. I really get behind this as well. So, in your opinion, what are the key benefits of using play based learning
1: approaches in preschool education? I mean, play just has so many benefits, and that's. But I think its number one benefit is the fact that it naturally and authentically integrates learning and all of the natural social interactions that people go through daily as adults, as children, as teens, you can learn through play. Play naturally brings those to life. And, you know, it's also naturally multisensory. It's engaging. It's in itself is natural for people. Every All children want to play. Adults like to play. It tends to look a little bit different as you get older, right? But... <laughs> If you don't forget about it, everybody's always doing something that feels good to them and something that they choose and something that is self directed. And those tend to be the definitions of play. And, you know, play also incorporates using motor skills, spatial skills, math skills, communication skills, creativity, problem solving. It's just, it really incorporates everything that sets the foundation for children to access later learning and information. You mentioned as adults that we,
0: choose the, the things that we play with. So do you do that for your, for your littles as well? Do you incorporate
1: their interests and strengths into their play-based activities? Absolutely. Absolutely. I like to call myself a child-led play-based educator because everything that we do is based off of the children. We do interest studies. We don't do anything in the beginning of the year. We just sit and observe and let the kids naturally play with um, whatever is in the classroom has been offered to them and kind of see where they take it if they're talking about cats a lot, maybe we'll study cats. Or if they're talking about dinosaurs a lot, maybe we'll study dinosaurs. So absolutely. And even in our playtime, the children are allowed to choose whatever they want, whenever they want, and pretty much however they want. That's great. So how do you ensure you said that you a
0: lot of the students that you work with are in inclusion classes? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's not technically, but absolutely, because they they are placed in our classroom because they might not have anywhere else to go. Okay, so how do you ensure
0: that your classroom environment is inclusive and accessible for all students with diverse needs? You know, you might have a student in a wheelchair, you might mm-hmm. have um, a blind student,
1: but how do, you, how do you include everyone? Sure. I mean, we, I try to set up an inclusive classroom no matter what, um, because all children are so different and develop so differently, especially within the age range of three to five. You know, the student, students entering my classrooms, uh, if they have a fall birthday, they're three. Um, And then they start turning five in January. So we are, we already have a pretty wide age range. And so I set it up with this play mindset, uh, which usually means a lot of flexibility, a lot of openness, a lot of accessibility. You know, as I mentioned, we're happy to let children grab whatever they want, move things around if necessary. So if there's an accommodation that needs to happen for a certain student, then we make that accommodation. And you know, the children are able to get anything they want at any time. So it's already set up for anybody who needs to do what they need to do to be able to do it. Right. If they need to ask, there's not much they need to ask for, but I teach them if there's something else that they need, they can just ask for it and we'll either get it or make it happen. Um, you know, we just teach into their routines and there's a few boundaries. It sounds like it's total chaos and total freedom, but <laughs> it is, but there are definitely some boundaries and routines and those are the structures and the roots. So you know, children can grab onto those if necessary, right? Because, you know, freedom of play can be pretty overwhelming sometimes.
0: I think structure and routines are so important to teach at the earliest level. So definitely, you have to have some type of guidelines in place when you're just, you know, or it could be just a free-for-all where, you know, there's a lot or there's too much going on. So your presentation at the SPED Summit um, talked specifically about multi-sensory experiences. And, So what are some of those experiences that you implement into your preschool classroom? And then can you provide some examples of activities or materials that promote engagement and learning through the multiple senses?
1: Sure. I am always setting up the room to be a sensory smart classroom. I want to make sure that students are always accessing whatever their input or possibly output that they need to do. We incorporate a lot of Multisensory sensory experiences by just being play-based. But more specifically, we have, you know, co- like a cozy corner. A lot of people have cozy corners in their room, but I have like multiple cozy corners and they're all kind of a little bit different. One is more enclosed or one is more soft. One has some accessibility to some sensory tools like breathing cards or emotion cards or sensory bottles or um, some fidgets or things like that. You know, I want to make sure that the children have space to get under things or in things or on top of things. We have a pickler triangle in our room at all times so kids can climb and slide. And we make sure that we have incorporated into the routines and the culture of the classroom, you know, the ability to take a break. We're fortunate enough in our school to have space. So, you know, we have whole separate classrooms that can be used as a space for a child to You know, have big body play or have, you know, a tantrum and safely throw things or move things about. Or on the opposite end, the classroom can be used as a quiet space where there's nobody else in the room. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of those tools available to us. We also, you know, we push out into the hallway. We don't just stay confined to our classroom. We use the hallway. We always have tape on the floor for obstacles. The children know that they can pick exercise cards to self regulate or even preventively self regulate. We have, Uh, you know, sit and spins, we have rockers, we have, um, you know, all kinds of like tents and the ladders and the, all the, all the possible things that children could need to, you know, have these different experiences, Um, you know, along with all of the regular sort of play things like a sensory table, sensory bins, um, you know, the kids can get their hands in paint. We have a lot of loose parts, which are really textured, which is amazing. They can be smooth, hard, soft. Um, And there's just so much space for movement in my room. Um, morning meeting times, the kids are never sitting for more than five minutes before they're up and moving or doing something where their body is either crossing midline or reaching up high or um, jumping or spinning, whatever they may possibly need. And we also don't really confine the children to, I try not to have, everything's open, open open-ended, right? So even in our like dramatic play area, they have hollow blocks and they have fabric and scarves, you know? So it's not like just a kitchen. It's, could be anything could be anything that they want and so they're just always moving about and then i feel like the freedom to choose in itself is giving them input or taking away possible issues like transitions or um you know only having one item of things we try to really make sure that the children just have access which just naturally provides all of those sort of sensory moments during the day so you aren't scheduling like
0: the kids will go to this center and then these kids will go to a different center. They're just having open play all the time.
1: Pretty much. Yes. We definitely do not schedule them. You know, a structure that could be put into place is making a choice beforehand, um, or like, you know, planning out a choice or things like that. Um, but for the most part, it starts out very open and then anything that needs to change according to the students can, can be put into place.
0: Well, we talked about meeting the needs of diverse students, but sometimes a lot of kids have trouble with those sensory processing challenges as well. So can you share some strategies or adaptations that you use to support these kids?
1: So, yeah, we really start to add in the structures, right? We do a lot of observing. We're always trying to get to know our students the best that we can get to know them. We do a lot of parent communication in the beginning to help understand anything that happens at home that we can possibly incorporate in the classroom and vice versa, And so if a child needs to make a plan, we make a plan. If a child needs a picture schedule to unpack, give them a picture schedule to unpack. Um, If, you know, we have headphones available, we have different seating available, we have a lot of things. We're very fortunate to have a lot of things available to the students that I've made sure that I have in my classroom so that anybody that needs any type of structure or any type of quiet space or just like I've said before, anything they need. I try to make sure that I have available so that I can give it to them when they need it. I just make sure I tell my kids that I'm here to help them figure that out, right? Because with the little kids, it's often monkey see, monkey do. So if somebody gets a set of headphones before I know it, I have like eight kids with headphones, which with headphones is not a huge deal, but we make sure that we really understand that they're being used appropriately, right? So if somebody has the drum out and it's really loud, yes, you need headphones. But if it's pretty quiet in the room, you probably don't. Um, And we really help them understand that my job at teacher school was to learn how to recognize these things in children and in their development. And that will help you give you what you need, which may be something different from what somebody else needs. Um, So we build that into the community so that when I do offer these structures to students who may have, you know, say sensory processing, if they need to step out more often, or if we need to have them always having a necklace or something like that, it's not singling any one person out because nobody really cares. It's just part of the tools that everybody gets if everybody needs it.
0: Right. Well, you've mentioned a few challenges that you've kind of come up against. Are there any other specific challenges that you've uncovered while implementing this? And how did you address those challenges?
1: So really, it's kind of the same process, just observing and getting to know the kids. So for example, my class in 21-22, so not last year, the year before, was really affected by the pandemic, Mm-hmm. They just really, really struggled in the school setting. And then with the use of masks, they couldn't see or hear our our faces and our sounds. And it was really, really difficult for them. So that class, I kind of had to just pull back on some of the openness and add in a bit more structure. So as a whole group, we would make a first choice. Um, and then I would ask them to try to stay in that first choice as long as possible because they needed to build stamina. Not that there's anything wrong with bouncing around from center to center all the time, but the whole class was doing it, which was making everything really chaotic and nobody was sort of getting deep into play. So we had to work on that. And so it's really just about observing and figuring out what the challenges are and finding the root of the problem. I can't help you. Know, my ABA, well, a little bit of my ABA always comes in. I'm always looking for like the root and the function of the behavior and what's happening. And then we go from there. Yeah, I think COVID
0: really did a number on those, on all kids, but Mm -hmm. especially those littles. They, you know, they didn't leave the house for how long and not, not being able to experience the world, I think really kind of impacted them significantly. So what advice would you give to other preschool teachers or even instructional coaches who are interested in incorporating more play based and inclusive
1: practices in their classrooms? So it just let them know that play takes a lot of trust. Right? Having the play mindset is where the play is going to come from. It's not going to be just like, hey, let's put out a play invitation today and see how it goes. You have to kind of have that mindset because the mindset kind of goes along with trusting your children, trusting yourself, trusting the process. And so trust is the biggest thing because you really sometimes have to let go of a lot when when it comes to play and allowing the children to play with something in any, any kind of way. Like an example is I had um, a new para in the classroom recently. And the kids were playing with pattern blocks and they were building with them. But in her mind, they should have been making pictures and patterns. And so she was telling them how to use the pattern blocks, Mm -hmm. which in that moment, they didn't need to know that. They were just exploring in a different way. And so sort of just trusting the kids that if they're going to use this material in the the way that they're getting something out of it. And, you know, so understanding that trust and learning to let go because teachers are taught so much control. I, I mean, in our all of our teacher prep programs, it's all about management, control this, control that, control this, which I totally get. You have to have some control. Otherwise, you know, children are going to get hurt and there's safety issues. But learning the little places where your brain lets you let go and lets you trust the kids to start with those little baby steps and to start kind of just like trusting the process.
0: Yeah, I feel like we um, stifle imagination a lot because we're always trying to guide them in the direction we want them to go. So I I feel like that's an important message. So do you have a product or an example of how to get teachers started using this multi-sensory approach?
1: Well, I have a lot of stuff that's on play because like I said, play is multi-sensory to begin with, but I do have um, a sensory list. That's a freebie that provides non-food sensory filler ideas that will get you through a whole year. And there's only like 10 or 15 options on there, but that's because I feel like to get deep into sensory and deep into play, kids should be able to use something for more than just a week or more than just a day. Um, mm-hmm. But so I have the sensory fillers list, which is really, really helpful for those who also don't want to use food in their sensory tables. I know there's some place sometimes that you need to, because if you have children who mouth things a lot, it may be safer to use pasta or something like that. But we also think about food insecurities and equity. And so I'm based the list off of non-food items.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. So I can link that in the show notes. And if, if this is something that would benefit you, the listeners and your program, then you can check that out. Well, Melissa, this has been great. I feel like preschool teachers who are listening will get a wealth of information here, but implementing a multisensory approach to learning can be applicable at any level. So I feel like everyone's going to get something out of this episode Can you tell the listeners where we
1: can find you and learn more from you? Sure. Um, I'm definitely on Instagram a lot. So you can find me at pre-k.spot on Instagram. Same thing on Threads. Now that Threads is the new thing. I haven't checked it out yet, but I I guess I need to do that. It's funny. I was never a Twitter user, but Threads, because it's attached to Instagram, sort of just like makes sense again to me. Um, And then I also have a podcast for early childhood educators called Pre-K Spot Talks, which you can find on all the major podcasts. No, site.
0: Well, that's great. I will put all of those links in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for for chatting with us. And I hopefully we can collaborate on something again in the future. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I could spread the play. They still have a little bit. <laughs> Talk to you. Thanks for sticking with me until the end. I can tell that you are just as dedicated to the field of special education as I am. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love it if you'd head over to SpedPrepAcademy.com/podcast. check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs. Go out and have an amazing day and I'll catch you on the next episode.